This morning we read the last part of Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, we will begin reading at verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own body. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. And I call your attention this morning to that last verse of Ephesians 5, verse 33. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the past couple occasions of baptism, I've called attention to portions of this passage in Ephesians 5, focusing on the calling of the wives and then the husbands when it comes to their respective roles in the marriage relationship. This morning I call your attention to Verse 33, noticing God's ordinance concerning marriage, which, after all, stands at the root of the family. And the reason for this instruction in verse 33 of Ephesians 5 ought to be evident to us. We need to be taught. We need to hear the powerful, effective word of God constantly that we might work out our salvation in fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. A Christian mindset, that is, life in Christ, is essential for Christian marriage. The general thought pattern concerning marriage, is one that takes things for granted. 
we mustn't take things for granted. The general thought pattern concerning marriage is one that relies upon what is called love, often nothing more than carnal feelings, and then wonders what goes wrong when those feelings subside. And often even in a Christian marriage, between a Christian man and a Christian woman, there is given no thought to the positive scriptural truth concerning marriage. We tend to think of our marriages much the same as as unbelievers think of their marriages. The only difference is that these two people happen to be Christians, whereas others are not. But it's evident from verse 32 that the Christian view of marriage must be something essentially different from all other views of marriage. We must think of marriage positively, always in terms of the relationship between our Lord Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. So we have to learn to test ourselves constantly by asking the questions, does my marriage correspond to that relationship? Is it manifesting that relationship? Am I governed by that view in my role as a husband or as a wife? So I call your attention this morning to the concluding verse of this chapter under the theme, The Calling of Christian Marriage. And we notice, first of all, a relationship of unity, secondly, a relationship of love, and finally, a relationship of fellowship. Christian marriage calls for a relationship of unity. If I could summarize in one word the real cause of failure and breakdowns in marriage, it would come down to the word self. Self. Self or selfishness and the various manifestations of self-seeking are the most disruptive forces in all the world. That's true in every aspect and sphere of life, but especially in such an intricately interpersonal relationship as marriage. All the serious problems in marriage ultimately come down to self, my rights, what I want, what, who is Who is she to say? What does she think she is? The self-centered husband will not love his wife, but will use her solely for his service, ruling over her as a tyrant. And the self-centered wife will always find enough in her husband to make her despise him. And she will say, why should I subject myself to him? The words of the text before us 
this morning are designed to show us how to deal with those wretched results of putting self first in our marriages and therefore how to glorify God in our marriages as so many pictures of Christ and his bride, the church. And because Christian marriage is not a natural, but a spiritual relationship, we must listen to what God has to say and to his wise instruction and bow in humility before him. You and I must freely confess as husbands that we know not how to rule, and as wives, We know not how to obey. We are both ignorant and conceited and miserable. We both need to stand beneath the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Although the husband and wife have distinct God-ordained roles within society and within the sphere of marriage, also as set forth in this section in Ephesians 5, the relationship of marriage is one of unity. And I want to address, first of all, the husbands in this respect. That's not to exclude you wives who must also learn from this, as well as you who are single, and must understand the relationship which God has instituted and which exists within the sphere of the church, and therefore among your brothers and sisters. But the focus of the instruction in this text, and really throughout this section in Ephesians 5, is this. You must realize that your wife is part of you. You will not feel that relationship of unity instinctively. God knows you have to be taught that fundamental principle of marriage. That's why the Bible teaches that truth in many, many places, as it also sets before us the unbreakable union between Christ and his bride, the church. So important is that truth that the apostle repeats it several times within these few verses of Ephesians 5. So we read, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Paul compares marriage to the relationship between Christ and his church and says, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And then once again, he expresses the unity of the relationship by referring to Genesis 2, verse 24, they too shall be one flesh. From the beginning, God has linked man and wife together in an inseparable bond, a bond of unity that is broken only by death. 
He didn't create the woman as he had the man out of the dust, though he could have. He rather formed the woman out of the man. Isn't it striking that even though the union of marriage was a created union, you and I don't instinctively feel that union in marriage? That's because of the tremendous breach and chasm wrought by sin. God brought a man and woman together in the inseparable bond of marriage. In his grace, he would teach us that truth once again, that we might be led to see the greater union, the mysterious union of the marriage between Christ and us, his church. Since also as husbands and wives, there is in us naturally nothing but sin and depravity, God graciously joins us according to his sovereign decree of election in Christ and by faith to the Son of God that we might draw our life and love from him. And with respect to our marriages, that has this implication. The husband, and the wife for that matter, must never think individually, individualistically, or selfishly. On a very practical level, the whole of the, of the man's thinking and life must include his wife. The moment you begin thinking of yourself in isolation from your wife, you have violated the most fundamental principle of marriage. When the text says, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, the meaning there is that every one of you who are husbands are to consider your wife as yourself, inseparable from you. You're no longer two. You are one flesh. Perhaps one of the biggest errors we make in connection with that concept is that we think of that one flesh relationship merely in terms of the sexual aspect of marriage. But we may not limit that unity and that union to the physical. That unity is related by the apostle to love. And love is far more than the physical aspect of marriage. In fact, long before any marriage is destroyed by adultery and physical disunity and separation. There is a lack of unity on the spiritual or intellectual level. And that's why we must see, men, that in marriage, as in the body of the church, we must not view things selfishly or individualistically. You must never view your wife 
merely as an addition to you. She's one with you. One. You are unified in that relationship in in a beautiful way to reflect the mysterious relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. So when we attend a marriage ceremony, we have to readjust our thinking and realize that he is no more an individual, nor is she. They too have become one, which no one may separate. A married man may not act as if he's a single man. I see a great tendency in our day to forget this very point. I've seen married men in the church who live as if they were bachelors. Perhaps such a man spends as much time with his buddies as he does with his wife. Perhaps he spends more time gaming on his phone than he does with his wife. Some men selfishly continue to spend money on personal pleasures and personal entertainment and personal toys and on themselves without any regard to the needs of the wife and family. Although there have been jobs that require men to travel at times and to be separated from their wives for brief periods. More and more we hear of married couples living their separate lives. That ought not be. If any of these things have characterized your marriage or your way of thinking, you must rethink your actions in the light of this word of God. Your wife is your body, one with you. Unity, oneness, is the central principle in marriage, the principle which casts out all destructive self-seeking. It's because so many people have never laid hold of this biblical principle but still think of their individual rights that you see so much discord and division today. We must lay hold of and practice this principle of unity within our marriages. Unity in Christ and according to His Word, again, that we might reflect the beautiful union of Christ and the church. The calling of Christian marriage is, in the second place, a calling to a relationship of love. Love which finds its basis in that unity. Love is a calling that husbands and wives share in common. By love, we must understand love in the deepest sense of the word. 
Love is the gift of Christ, which unites two or more people in perfect fellowship. That's the love that's seen in the midst of the church. That's the love that must be seen in our marriages. Such love is not merely a sensual passion. It's a genuine and constant bond which is reflective of the love of Christ and comes out of a pure heart fervently as we read in 1 Peter 1 verse 22. Such love is not grounded in wealth or physical beauty which may not last. It's grounded in the unchangeable command of God which tells us that for better for worse, in life, until death do us part, we are to love one another. Although in a particular manner, love is the calling of the husband, and emphasized as such in this section, it's not exclusively so. It's a calling also for the wives. That's clear in Titus 2, verse 4, for example. Wives are to love their husbands. Love is a mutual calling within the marriage bond. You and I don't have the capability of loving. We have to understand that. Our depraved natures, our sinful flesh, hinder us from that exercise of love. That's why we need constantly to hear the calling of God, love me and your neighbor as yourself. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. Let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. We need to hear that that call of God, because that word is spoken by Christ powerfully and efficaciously so that we do love. That love comes to expression many different ways, but summarized by the one idea of giving one to another. Giving for one's spiritual welfare, first of all. But giving faithfully to one's spouse. Faithfulness characterizes a godly marriage. Let every man have his own wife, And let every woman have her own husband, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. Furthermore, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise the wife unto the husband, as the Spirit of Christ motivates you by that word, you labor to avoid all occasions and incentives 
of wandering from your one wife and one husband. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. True love behaves not unseemly, but crucifies the fleshly lusts that war against the soul. But along with faithfulness sexually, there is the mutual care of each other's health, spiritual health too, and foremost, and reputation, and material needs. When Christ himself speaks to us with the word of his power, then our love is manifest in our marriages in such a way that nothing but death shall separate us for our care, from our care for each other. That same faithful giving is expressed in the mutual endeavors for each other's salvation. What a horrifying matter it is for two people to enjoy the comforts of marriage together and then go together to hell. How can either of you rest while carrying one damnable sin in your bosom? If you are married to Christ, your work as one flesh is to build up each other in your most holy faith and in all holiness. Husbands, shall your wife walk in sin under your very eyes and you not say anything to her about it? Wife, shall your husband carry a sin in his bosom and you not love him enough to urge his repentance and to hold him to that? Although this admonition in Hebrews 3 applies to every one of us within the sphere of Christ's church, it certainly applies within the holy bond of marriage. Exhort one another daily, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. As husband and wife living out of the love of Christ, Your marriage has to reflect that. Has to reflect the work of Christ and of our everlasting salvation. But in the text before us, the calling of love is a calling distinguished between husband and wife according to their God-given roles in that unified relationship. Paul addresses the husbands 
when he says, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. Now that's a command that really stands out when you consider the context in which the apostles spoke these words. When we read about the pagan view of marriage in Ephesus in that day, we see that this statement of the apostle was astounding. And all the more was that the case when we understand how corrupted had become the view of marriage even in the church of the Old Testament. Man was created the head of the woman. That creation ordinance remained. But the sin of man at the beginning and the consequent tyranny of man over the woman brought by the curse had developed throughout the centuries. So that when the Apostle Paul wrote this, wives were were viewed as no more than slaves. Then the whole notion of polygamy conveys that same idea, the wife was viewed but a piece of property. Husbands were generally domineering and demanding. And then Christ came and upheld the sacred bond of marriage saying, what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. You know, man can put asunder that relationship in any number of ways. And when the Pharisees brought up the subject of divorce and Moses' allowance for divorce in Deuteronomy 24, verse 4, under just about any circumstance, Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wife. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Matthew 19. And then the Spirit of Christ was poured out into the church. And thousands were saved under the preaching of the apostles. And the apostles also proclaimed the sacred state of marriage, holding forth the word of God and the effects of Christ's work upon this creation ordinance. No one had heard such preaching before. Moreover, the Spirit applied that preaching so that the testimony was carried forth in the lives of believing husbands and wives. True marriage 
was once again being put to practice to the witness of the power of Jesus Christ and the Christian faith. Let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. Is the word of God to you husbands. That means within your God-given place of headship and leadership, you don't abuse it by being a dictator and unloving. This is the sum of your entire calling within the marriage relationship. And that's why it's mentioned not only in this verse, but in verses 25 and 28 as well. That means, if we speak first of all of some negative principles, You do not abuse your wife. It's possible for a man foolishly to abuse his own body, whether by eating too much or by drinking too much or by various other addictions which are idolatry. But when a man abuses his body, he's going to suffer. Well, it's the same in the marriage relationship. Because you and your wife are one flesh, if you abuse her, you will suffer the chastening hand of God. There will be a breakdown in the relationship between you and your wife. We don't have to look far to see the truth of that. But not only should a man not abuse his wife, he should should not neglect her. We've touched on that already in connection with the mutual callings within marriage, but just as neglect of the body causes suffering, and if continual, death, so will a man's neglect of his wife. Your wife is not simply your homemaker and your bedmate. She's your body, part of you. You are to dwell with her. Consult her. Speak with her. Make her a part of your activity and your conversation. Husbands, love your wives. Even as Christ loved the church. That is, you, and I include myself, brethren, must love your wife, and I must love mine, Not only in what we say, but in what we do. It's easy enough to say, I love you, honey. What do our actions convey? 
We must love in truth. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. His love was real. And it continues. Even though we, his bride, are are often the most undesirable and petty and wretched people imaginable. Christ's love was holy, without impurity. So you are to love your wife, not simply using her to seek your, to satisfy yourself and your sinful lusts. Love seeketh not its own. We read in 1 Corinthians 13, to love your wife only in hope of getting something from her? Is not Christ's love towards his bride? He loved the church that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that is, by the use of the word and sacrament. A husband cannot have a better example to further the sanctification of his wife. And the love of Christ was great without comparison. He laid down his life for his church. You are called to love your wife even as Christ loved the church. But the text before us states directly, let every one of you love his wife even as himself. Love her tenderly. As Peter says, she's the weaker vessel. Some are like pieces of crystal, soon shattered if not handled carefully, with tenderness. Deal with her as yourself. No one can touch your sores more tenderly than you yourself. Love your wife cheerfully and eagerly. When you see a way to help her, do so. When you see a way to help yourself, you put your whole being into it, don't you? So must you help your wife with loving encouragement to her when she does well, as did the husband of the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31. Lead her as your head leads your body. Lead her in the spiritual pilgrimage toward that city which has foundation whose builder and maker is God. Lead her as a godly head, giving her a good example so that she longs to follow you even as the church follows Christ. Hear this word of God. But then the wife also bears a calling within this relationship of Christian love 
And that's seen in her reverence toward her husband. And this is also a word that was astounding at the time it was written and remains so to just about the whole world today. The text speaks of the calling of the Christian wife to fear her husband. Now we must remember that the context is the love of Christ which has transformed marriage, Christian marriage. So the fear referred to here is not the fear of terror. Indeed, that was very common, still is, under that tyranny of her husband, a woman naturally lives in fear. But we read in 1 John 4 verse 18, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casteth out fear in the sense of terror. And therefore, the calling to fear is a calling to reverence your husband. While living in subjection to him, You are to hold him in such honor and esteem for God's sake that you're afraid to do anything that would hurt him spiritually. Now you understand the difficulty of this word, don't you, wives? You can see all kinds of faults in your husband, can't you? Probably even enough to despise him. And just as today, so it was when Paul wrote this epistle, if a woman saw virtues in her husband, she called attention to his faults, that she might have occasion to say, why should this man rule over me? That's why Paul said, you mustn't question the abilities of your husband, nor whether he's worthy to exercise authority and to be your head. You must consider what God himself has ordained. You must obey him without contradiction. See to it that you reverence your husband. Now there is no question about the clarity of man's calling to love his wife. Why then should there be question about the wife's calling to submit to and to reverence her husband? Those who reject this word of God and their distinctive calling reject God himself. In obedience to God, you wives are to reverence your husbands, that is, you are to treat them with reverential obedience. Perhaps the best commentary on this passage is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, 
they may also without the word be won by the conversation of the wise, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. That last verse, that brings laughter today. I've seen it at weddings when that verse is referred to. And I wouldn't say that in our culture today, you wives are to address your husbands as my Lord. But you realize, first of all, that reverence, that spirit of reverence must characterize you in your relationship to your husband. And I can say that in our day, we have gone way too far to the opposite. Where wives think nothing of openly criticizing their husband. And I'm not talking to their husbands. As I said earlier, we need to be corrected. But wives find it all too easy today to criticize their husband to others. Very opposite of reverencing your husband. You, re you are to regard your husband as your head. You are one. As the body is to Christ, so are you to your husband. May the recognition of that come to expression in your life. So you do what is right. Not being worried about what other women might think of you. What the world might think of you. Let the unbelieving say what they will. Are we not filled with the Spirit? 
You wives are to reverence your husbands in everything. That means several things from a practical point of view. In the first place, that means, wives, that though we must always honor our parents, you're no longer to be controlled by your parents. Your husband is your head. That a man leaves his father and mother to be joined unto his wife means the same for the wife. While yet loving your parents, you are not to cleave to them. The essence of marriage for you is that you reverence your husband. In the second place, that reverence is to be seen in subjection to him. In all things, as the church is subject to Christ. Thirdly, the manner of your reverent obedience must be to God's glory. A grudging spirit and a bickering tongue is not obedience to your calling before God. And even if your husband's rule be not godly in Christ Jesus, it's better that you leave him to answer to God than that you join him and have to answer for your own contempt. Finally, though much more could be said, your reverence also is to be seen in words and deeds. For wives, a meek and quiet spirit is in the sight of God of great price, as we read in 1 Peter 3. And this is your calling before God who seeks your good in his wise instruction. Such a marriage will be blessed. Such a marriage will be experienced and seen as a marriage of rich fellowship. That's why marriage is a divine symbol of that most intimate fellowship between God and his people in Christ. As a man takes a wife for himself, God has taken unto himself a people chosen from eternity made them his peculiar possession in the midst of, in distinction from all the peoples of the earth. Through all history, Christ is preparing to take his bride unto himself that that she might partake of every heavenly blessing in the fellowship of his love. And he sealed that union with his bride by the atoning blood he shed on Calvary. And just as in a marriage ceremony when the vows are spoken, so Christ unites himself to his bride with the infallible promises of his word. He loves his bride. And he sheds his love abroad in her heart. He reveals to her the secrets of his heart, draws her into his most intimate fellowship, and adorns her with spotless holiness that she might serve him into all eternity in that unbreakable bond of fellowship. 
and as a symbol of that heavenly relationship and for the purpose of bringing forth his church to the glory of his name, God ordained the holy bond of marriage as two individuals are brought together in the providence of God and become one flesh. And he says, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. Blessed is the fellowship of Christian marriage to all who walk in the truth of his word. By the word of his power, Christ speaks. He speaks to you and me, drawing us to himself to love him and to serve him as our Lord. And so as a husband, you regard your wife as a gift from God. Your rib, who is dependent upon God through you, her husband, for her protection, for her care, for her spiritual nurture, who's also your help as you fulfill your calling in the midst of the world. She's your most intimate companion as together you seek the things above and look for the marriage feast of the Lamb. And as a wife, to the glory of God, you love your husband. For God's sake, and live in reverential obedience to Him. And so true marriage ends in God as it begins in Him. Its purpose is not primarily your happiness. That's only a benefit for you in Christ. The fact remains, however, that as married couples, you will face many trials that single people escape. The purpose of marriage is not even primarily for the propagation of the human race. Though God's church is born through marriage, but the chief purpose of our marriages is to reflect the glory of God and the wonder of His grace in gathering to Christ a precious bride. Hear then your calling and live unto Him, considering the wonder of the mystery of Christ and the church. Amen. Father, we acknowledge our sins before Thee. We have not held the holy bond of marriage in the esteem and honor that it deserves and to which Thou hast commanded us. We pray that Thou wilt so govern us by Thy Holy Spirit and apply Thy word to our hearts that we might live according to Thy holy will, magnifying Thy name and the glory of Thy grace in Jesus Christ, and so present us 
to the great bridegroom of the church at the marriage supper of the Lamb, in whose name we pray, amen.